Hi, you're listening to Go Dutch, eh? A podcast from the Embassy of the Kingdom of the Netherlands to Canada. Our countries have a special relationship built from common values and a history that is unlike any other. This series features extraordinary Dutch and Canadians who give their views on how our two countries can use this shared purpose to build a better world together. Hello, my name is Ines Kopolse and I'm the ambassador of the Kingdom of the Netherlands in Canada. In this second season of our podcast, we are focusing on diversity and inclusion. And today, in the second episode of the season, I will be having a conversation with two remarkable leaders of LGBTIQ organizations and their extremely valuable work. Deborah Owusu Akia, Debbie for short, is the executive director of the Canadian Center for Gender and Sexual Diversity. Debbie is a first-generation Ghanaian-Canadian and a passionate black feminist and social justice advocate. Debbie has studied international affairs and has previously worked for Global Affairs Canada and Oxfam Canada. She was the recipient of a FEMI Award for her feminist and youth leadership in the Ottawa-Gatineau region in 2017. My other guest is Marie Ricardo, who is the executive director of COC Nederland, the oldest LGBTIQ organization in the world. They actually exist 75 years now. Marie was born in Curaçao and studied public international law in Amsterdam and San Francisco. She has worked with LGBTI movements in African and Caribbean countries. Marie has been fighting for an inclusive LGBTIQ movement throughout her career. She's been a board member at different LGBTI initiatives like Planet Romeo Foundation and Pride Amsterdam and is currently a board member at ATRIA, the Institute on Gender Equality and Women's History based in Amsterdam. With these two fascinating female leaders, I will discuss what the International Day Against Homophobia, Transphobia and Biphobia or IDAHOT in short, means to them, and how they see the road ahead in an inclusive post-COVID recovery. But before we dig into the conversation, I would like to introduce a special song. It's appropriately titled Lockdown and performed by Nukoyuyu Kazila Bryan, known to many of his fans as Brio Bryans. Brio Bryans is based in Toronto and was born in Uganda. He's an LGBT activist and has worked with several LGBT organizations in Uganda. He has always used music as a tool of advocacy and sensitization about LGBTI issues in Uganda. For example, he composed the Ugandan LGBTI movement anthem called the Kuchu Anthem. Brian Bryant describes lockdown as a song he wrote and produced from home during the COVID-19 pandemic lockdown period. As a newcomer to Canada, he describes this period as particularly challenging. The song is about being stuck at home, not able to meet up with loved ones and not able to make good and bad memories. But it also highlights how mental health is affected by missing loved ones. Sitting here all alone, stuck at home. Just you and me, just you and me, but it's all 
Welcome, Marie and Debbie. We will be launching this podcast episode on the International Day Against Homophobia, Transphobia and Biphobia, or in abbreviation, IDAHOT. Now, what does this mean to you? Debbie, would you like to go first? Absolutely. So for me, I think the day, it's a reminder. I think it's a reminder of the work that has been done addressing transphobia, biphobia, homophobia, but it also is a reminder of the work that needs to continue to be done. And so I recognize it as an opportunity for us to um, sometimes get back together. I think when we're in this movement, a lot of things are happening at the same time. It's an opportunity for us to reconnect and just reaffirm our goals and our commitments to wanting to create a better world and, and, and eliminating these violences that happen. Yeah, excellent. Marie, what would be your answer? Yeah, well, I completely agree with uh, uh, Debbie, but for me, actually, it's a day like any other. And what I mean by that is that uh, um, it's the essence of it is that we as LGBTQ people are al- allowed to live without fear of being violated against and oppressed. And um, uh, that should be the case every day. Um, what I'm happy about with a specific day that is themed around this is that it offers the opportunity to have much needed conversations about the work that still needs to be done, like uh, Debbie said. Yeah. Yeah, very good. Now, the, the theme of this year's Idahot globally is together, resisting, supporting, healing. Now, with this focus, could you reflect a bit on what an inclusive post-COVID recovery could look like and, and how could we build back better in, in global solidarity? Now, Debbie, I would like to start with you first, because you in, in our earlier conversation, you mentioned that we need to include youth. Now, how can we make sure that next generations receive the support that they need and don't have to start many of the equal rights uh, battles all over again? Absolutely. So I think a lot of the conversation we're having here on the Canadian side is about a feminist post-COVID recovery. It's um, been a central part of conversation you will see in feminist organizations, some of the LGBTQ, even the federal government. And I think the reason why it's important to center youth is because COVID-19 as a whole has exacerbated already existing inequalities. And what we're seeing specifically with homeless people and houseless people where youth come into play is that they make a significant portion of the homeless population here in Canada and majority of those youth populations are also LGBTQ. And so I think it's really crucial in order for us to like build back better is to center how important and how crucial organizations like the CCGSD where I work um, plays in uh, being part of the public policy response. A lot of the organizations who are on the ground, who are doing the immediate work are doing a lot of the community gathering, responses to health needs, and they're severely underfunded. And so for me, I think it's important for us to remind ourselves that those interventions in those spaces that are LGBTQ-led are so important to ensure that queer youth in particular are not left behind. But I also think it's important for us to recognize that in the Canadian context, that rise in gender-based violence that we've been seeing across the entire country also includes LGBTQ people and specifically LGBTQ youth. In our organization, we're a youth-led and youth-serving organization that does work in in schools across the country. And what we've noticed with students being uh, 
you know, going to school online is that their home spaces are not safe for them either and that they're dealing with a particular type of violence. And that gets missing in the conversation on gender-based violence. It's missing in the conversation on a feminist response to uh, COVID-19 and this post-COVID-19 recovery. And I just think it's super important to acknowledge these things so that young people aren't left behind and that they can see themselves be part of organizations that are well-resourced, well-funded, and able to address the needs from a, a lived experience perspective. Marie, do you concur with uh, with Debbie's remarks? What would your reaction be? Yeah, I absolutely concur. And it's uh, interesting to see that uh, communities that are left behind uh, in the COVID response uh, um, are similar. When we look at the situation in uh, Canada and in the Netherlands, Debbie spoke about uh, uh, queer youths that end up uh, on the streets. And that is something that we notice here in the Netherlands also. Especially if you look at the bigger cities such as Amsterdam and Utrecht, uh, when you look at the uh, number of youth that are um, living on the streets or are homeless, uh, um, about 40 to 50 percent of these youth are queer youth. So that's a big problem. And uh, one of the uh, um, uh, factors uh, leading youth to flee their houses, because that's how we see it, is the domestic violence that is happening inside uh, homes. People um, do not have a safe place to go when it's, uh, when, uh, in these times of COVID. Schools are not open or are, um, uh, it, it's uh, not an easy place to go anymore. So I think that if you're looking, talking about um, uh, solidarity within, uh, across communities, um, uh, for a better post-COVID reality, then we should be including uh, aspects such as uh, um, um, queer homelessness within talks of how to uh, create a, a post-COVID society that is more feminist, more just, and really effectively addressing gender-based violence. So I concur. Right, so, so because of COVID, these already vulnerable groups are extra vulnerable, uh, is, is, uh, that, that, that's what you're saying as well. That I, I think for, for me that, that's, that's quite an eye-opener. I never thought about that. It's, uh, it's good to realize that. Now, Marie, you, you have the floor. Could, could you, you also mentioned that um, communities most affected by the pandemic should support each other and that governments should find a way uh, to support this collaboration. Can, can you elaborate a bit on that as well? Yes. Yeah, it's, it's uh, um, a bit uh, linked to what I said before, right? Uh, when we are having the conversations about uh, domestic violence taking place in homes in the Netherlands and uh, um, uh, uh, women not being able to find the support and the safety that they need, a lot of talks are about how to empower women. How can we ensure that um, after uh, COVID we have more equality on all uh, levels? But uh, indeed, when we speak about gender-based violence and domestic violence, we are not also including uh, a response, an adequate response to queer youths on the street. So I think when I speak about um, uh, uh, governments finding a way to support the solidarity, um, I mean that governments should also be open to, uh, the, uh, um, uh, uh, to civil society that is uh, addressing this and also um, uh, uh, leave it to civil society to also find a way uh, to, uh, to, to effectively respond, actually, to um, the needs that are underground. Because there are a lot of ideas, but we do see that sometimes it's uh, channeled through a, a pre, um, uh, um, preconceived uh, um, strategy of uh, supporting and providing aid by government. 
Now, as two black women leaders of LGBTIQ organizations, what link do you see between your work and other movements like the Black Lives Matter movement or the anti-gender movement and hashtag me too, but also growing xenophobia? What should an intersectional approach towards racial and LGBTIQ justice issues ideally look like? Debbie, would you like to answer first? Absolutely. I think the links are interesting because it's, we're all addressing very similar things. We're addressing the mechanisms that perpetuate discrimination and violence across these movements. And I think that's what links us. You can't address issues impacting black populations without also impacting how sexual violence shows up, which links to the Me Too movement. You also can't address how, um, even within addressing the violence impacting black people, and I'll look at it from a Canadian perspective too, where, you know, an anti-newcomer sentiment is also tied to anti-blackness. So much of it is linked. And so part of what I think is necessary in order for our movements to move together is to recognize those linkages and also see in which you can amplify the voices of other people um, across movements. One thing that's important to notice to note as well is how even within these movements, Me Too, even within Black Lives Matter, etc., other forms of oppression creep up. You'll see homophobia come up in spaces that are addressing maybe the police brutality, or even gender-based violence. Likewise, you'll see sexism show up in issues regarding xenophobia. It is super important not only to take a look at ourselves within our own movements on what we're doing, but recognizing that if we don't address those and we don't move towards eliminating that in those spaces, it is counterproductive to the broader, long-lasting change that we want to see. And so in my perspective, solidarity is necessary in order for you to properly integrate an intersectional framework to what you're doing. And sometimes it really requires introspection. <laughs> it requires hard conversations. And it, it, it also is a reminder that I can't be free unless you're free. And that has to be the motto that guides our work to make sure that these, these issues that are very, very, very similar across movements are, are addressed and that change comes forward. Thank you, Debbie. So solidarity between the different movements is absolute necessity. Now, Marie, in your answer, may I ask you to also reflect upon the emancipation discussion over the years within COC? The organization exists 75 years this year. How has the LGBTI movement developed itself? Are the topics on the current LGBTI agenda new? Is there a parallel with what other movements are going through right now? Yes. Uh, yeah, COC is uh, existing for 75 years indeed uh, this year. And um, uh, we proudly say we are the oldest uh, still existing LGBTI organization. Um, that's nice, but uh, an LGBTI movement consists of uh, individuals. So um, these are different individuals and their groups that have shaped uh, what also COC is uh, today. Um, you asked whether uh, the topics on the agenda are new. They are definitely not. Um, uh, when COC was uh, established in 1946, um, already in the 70s, you had a lot of uh, activists, uh, um, uh, uh, groups and individuals already um, advocating uh, for a more, uh, more anti-sexism, anti-racism 
um, uh, within the LGBT movement and within society uh, itself. So as uh, a COC, and, and that's what I like about uh, our organization, is that it uh, evolves uh, with time. So you see that uh, uh, whatever uh, conversations and whatever uh, um, uh, developments that are happening out there, it, uh, uh, these are people that are motivated to also take action and become a part of uh, COC. It's not always uh, um, uh, in, any, in every situation um, immediately a good fit. So um, some people uh, move to make their own movements and organizations and then return back. So what I um, like about uh, how movements shape and in particular how COC as an uh, organization has uh, um, uh, shaped and developed is uh, that uh, we strive always uh, to uh, be able and worthy to have that uh, um, uh, uh, th that label of uh, representing organization. So that means being able to listen, being able to make space, uh, um, and also being able to address challenges uh, that occur within uh, the organization and within uh, the movement, uh, if these are challenges uh, that are regarding racism and sexism. Thank you, Marie. So although the topics on the current LGBTIQ agenda are maybe not new, the challenges that have developed over time are different than they used to be. Um, I would like to go on to the next question, and that would be, how would you like to see the cooperation between governments, civil society and other stakeholders on protection and promotion of equal rights of LGBTIQ people shape up? Debbie? So I, when I think of this question, I think of the work that Dignity Network Canada is doing currently. And my organization, the Canadian Centre for Gender and Sexual Diversity, are a very proud member of the network. And we've been kind of chipping away and leading the direction as to how we, we'd like to see this type of engagement coming from our governments to not only civil society organizations, but I'd also say stakeholders who are either individuals or stakeholders who are um, advisors from around the world. I think what's important, it's a very simple motto you hear, nothing for us without us. And I think that is extremely crucial. I know for our government that tends to, um, you know, speak on, uh, on behalf of or in favor of LGBTQ rights and defending human rights around the world, um, and policy, foreign policy that address that, um, international development processes that address that need to be informed by the people who are working directly with the communities that are, are going to benefit from that. And so I'd like to see particularly some embedded framework at Global Affairs Canada. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tease them a little, um, where they're actively engaging civil society organizations and that there are constant meetings, whether it's at a quarterly basis, um, whether it's to inform on certain funding opportunities that are coming. I think that active engagement will definitely mean that the work the government is doing is is you know, grounded in the data that the work that our organizations are currently doing, but then also ensuring that governments are supporting the, our work financially as well. And so I think the Active Fund, which is currently open, if I believe, through the Dignity Network and our partners Equitas, it's a prime example of how government, civil society and stakeholders have come together to create a fund that Canadian organizations like my own can do a project with uh, LGBTQ organizations in the global south. I think it's a very beautiful 
um, example of what can continue to happen and where this direction can go. So I'd love to see uh, a framework where there is ongoing and meaningful engagement. Thank you, Debbie. So governments should remain engaged. Um, Marie, um, perhaps you can tell us a bit more about COC's lessons learned over the years and the current PRIDE program that you partner on with the Netherlands Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Yes, definitely. Um, uh, uh, the PRIDE program is a, a strategic partnership with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs through which uh, we have uh, supported over the course of five years uh, um, uh, close to, I think, 150 LGBTI organizations and initiatives uh, um, uh, in the global south, as they call it. And I think one of the major uh, lessons learned and best practices uh, that I can mention from that is how the uh, uh, partnership with the uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs has created a more equal level playing field between civil society and uh, governments. Um, I think for us at COC what we see is that we uh, are able to have more open conversations uh, about the underlying assumptions uh, in bringing positive change for LGBTI uh, people. Uh, I can give an example. I think uh, if you look back uh, maybe uh, 10 years ago, uh, we would see that uh, embassy staff would uh, sometimes have a very difficult uh, um, uh, uh, time to uh, see that in a conservative uh, country. Um, there could be LGBT uh, people or LGBT movements. And um, uh, now what we uh, see is that we as COC have been able to have these engagements with them and tell them that we believe that everywhere always there are LGBTI uh, people and they are willing to take uh, um, uh, the lead to uh, change their own reality on their terms. So what, what, uh, the only thing that is needed is uh, to actually give that space. So what we see now is that um, uh, when embassies, uh, Dutch embassies then want to do something in a particular country, they engage us to, um, uh, to support them in uh, getting in touch with uh, uh, movements and uh, communities in these countries. Um, so I think that's a nice lessons learned because it uh, uh, shows how uh, really to Effect to to to, make, to to achieve effective change, you know, if you involve the people um, uh, that are concerned in the conversation, then you're actually able to um, uh, uh, take steps. So, with that engagement uh, of government, civil society, and other stakeholders, you can make uh, a difference, even in countries where you don't really expect it. Thank you, Marie. I would like to move on with the next question, and that would be how should we approach tensions between constitutional rights, like the right of everyone to be treated with the same respect, dignity and consideration, and on the other hand, freedom of expression and freedom of religion and belief? How can we make progress while dealing with these tensions? And do you feel your organization has a role to play in this discussion? Debbie? So... From my perspective, here in Canada, we have the Canadian Charters of, of Rights and Freedoms, which clearly outlines every um, social item and political item that the Canadian state considers protected. And in it, you'll see freedom of speech, you'll see uh, freedom, um, freedom to gather, you'll see freedom of expression for gender identity, etc. And when that was created and drafted, it was not with conditions, if it makes sense, in the sense that one outweighs the other. 
So if you look at it from the perspective that all of that is on an equal playing field, in my perspective, I don't think you can use something like religion or freedom of speech to either harm or antagonize another group that is also protected. We see this happening here in Canada right now, and in my work, we're seeing it particularly within the education field where um, people will use social conservative ideology to explain that trans youth do not have a space within schools, that educating people on gender and sexual diversity as part of comprehensive sex education is somehow a threat to uh, religions. And it's a tactic that we know is done intentionally. And unfortunately, it's a tactic that is successful. And we've been seeing this in other states across the world. For me, I think the role that my education plays is to, to serve as a reminder that all of our charter and rights and freedoms, all of them that are granted to us are on an equal playing field and that no one can ever use um, that charter, something that is meant to protect and provide protections as an opportunity to to uh, legitimize their harm towards a marginalized group. And our organization is, is doing that now and supporting youth, actually, who are leading some awesome advocacy at the at their school level in, in calling out um, especially the Catholic schools, how that 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 uh, project of using my religion to thwart the rights of LGBTQ people, and they're doing that amazing work, these young people, and we're here supporting them, amplifying their message, and making sure that that message is also heard at a public policy level within ministries of education, within our Ministry of Women and Gender Equality, within Heritage, even within Global Affairs Canada. And that's the role we're playing, and we're hoping to continue to be that voice. So freedom of speech or religion should never be used to harm others or discriminate uh, others. Uh, Marie, I guess you agree with Debbie on this? Yeah, well, uh, very briefly, because I agree completely. Um, uh, constitutional rights are an equal standing. So it's uh, not uh, under no circumstances um, should it be possible to use, uh, to invoke your right uh, to uh, religion to discriminate against uh, somebody else's uh, being. And uh, I think that uh, what is also very problematic uh, in this sense is also negating all these um, LGBTQ people that are also religious, that uh, um, should have also their uh, freedom to be accepted in, uh, in that other identity that they um, have. And I really get uh, worked out when um, we have these incidences in the Netherlands uh, where schools ask uh, parents to sign declarations denouncing um, uh, homosexuality. These are um, uh, um, Christian-based uh, um, uh, schools. Uh, because from the get-go, you uh, um, really, it's a violation on something that is uh, very uh, unique to a person, in, to that person's being, and already creating um, a hostile environment uh, uh, from the get-go um, for these uh, kids. So I think that as, as COC, we are very um, uh, vocal about the fact that these uh, measures, uh, these things should not be able to happen, and that we have the mechanisms uh, in place like uh, um, school inspections, the ex um, inspection board uh, for schools. Um, uh, why are we only checking upon whether the quality of education is uh, um, uh, right or um, if the school environment is safe and not really looking into these matters that are also creating, uh, um, in a very essential way, an uh, unsafe environment for kids when um, in, within classrooms and uh, at 
uh, at the forefront, their um, uh, unique identities uh, are being um, uh, discriminated against. And I think that school, board, uh, school inspection um, uh, institutions should also be checking about these things happening and uh, um, uh, schools should be held to account when they uh, um, uh, have these practices in place. Thank you, Marie. So a clear role for school inspections. Um, I would like to move to my last question um, for both of you. Why is pro proactive international and multilateral cooperation, uh, and for instance, the cooperation between Canada and the Netherlands, so important on this topic? And I guess, and I hope your answer will be yes, it's very important. But Debbie, could you, could you explain why? I think it's important because we're able to, through international cooperation, learning the best practices from another country, learning the gaps of another country, trying to see if there are linkages. Those conversations are needed in order for um, laws, for legislation to be better, even in our advocacy work to be better. I think of it from the level of someone who's leading a CSO. It's through conversations like this one where I get to talk to Marie about the work that COC is doing in Amsterdam to say, hey, what do we need to do here in Canada? Or, oh, you're, no you're also noticing that, you know, despite our countries being leaders um, globally on issues with regards to 2 LGBTQ people, the gaps that our organizations are seeing at the domestic level are very similar. And I think those conversations are needed. And this is a perfect example of what could be happening um, at different levels, whether it's with multinational corporations, whether it's between uh, state actors, literally, between Canada and Netherlands. These conversations are opportunities for us to do better in every aspect of our work, and they're needed. And so definitely, I think it's important. And I think it's important on multiple levels. And I think for the folks who are listening today, you're, you're listening to one example of why and how it could be utilized. So learning about each other's lessons learned, best practices, sharing. Um, Marie, why, why is cooperation between countries like the Netherlands and Canada important for you? Yeah, well, um, I agree. And I think I want to point out that there are not many countries that are this uh, uh, progressive uh, and supportive, uh, supportive on this topic of um, uh, LGBTIQ. Uh, um, and I think it helps when countries like this uh, uh, co collaborate and uh, cooperate with one another because it helps also to share the burden uh, of uh, um, um, well, creating uh, a, a more like... Uh, I have, well, we call it a fist against conservatism. So I think it's, uh, that it's important in that sense. But also uh, because uh, um, uh, exchanges like this help us uh, to also tackle these uh, challenges that arise within our countries our, uh, themselves. If we want to be progressive and stay progressive, we should also be very uh, weary of the conservative forces within our country. So what can we learn from each other and how can we uh, share strategies and tacked it uh, on uh, um, uh, well, fostering the progression, uh, progressiveness that we want to um, uh, well, have flourish. Thank you both, Marie and Debbie. I think you're absolutely right. It is important for countries to work together on issues like this, to share strategies and to share lessons learned and keep engaging with countries where the rights of the LGBTIQ communities are less or not protected. 
This is exactly why we brought you two together in this podcast, by introducing the work Debbie does with the Canadian Centre for Gender and Sexual Diversity and the work Marie does with COC in the Netherlands. So thank you so much for your time, for your open and very knowledgeable replies to my questions and for your commitment to this hugely important work you're both doing. And I do hope you will keep in touch with each other, to keep in contact, and that maybe more organizations from other countries get inspiration from this podcast. Good luck with everything you do. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Bye, everyone. Bye. Well, that concludes this interview, which shows how much still needs to be done and how important it is that we keep learning from each other share our experiences and ideas beyond our own borders. We need to be aware that the COVID-19 pandemic has hit vulnerable groups in our societies extra hard. So in order to secure an inclusive post-COVID recovery, we have to listen to LGBTIQ communities and hear what their specific challenges and needs are. After all, there is no one size fits all. Both Debbie and Marie are engaged with youth movements because they are convinced that it's crucial to teach next generations about respect of the rights and freedoms of every individual. In conclusion, by working together across sectors and organizations, we can make a difference and deliver on our promise to not leave anyone behind. To close this podcast episode, I would like to share part of the song Birth of a New Age, that was released by the Dutch-based Surinamese singer-songwriter Jean-Gu Macroy. Jean-Gu is an openly gay role model for young people at home and abroad. For him, this song is meant as an ode to individual resilience and authenticity. Birth of a New Age is the Netherlands' submission to the Eurovision Song Contest that will be held in Rotterdam from the 18th to the 22nd of May this year. It's the birth of a new age. You know man broke me. You know man broke me. You know man broke broke me. You know man broke me. You know man broke me. You know man broke broke me. the fruit adorning the legacy of every forgotten revolutionary born in resilience proud like a lion we are the birth of a new age you know mom broke on me you know mom broke on me you know mom broke on, broke on me you know mom broke on me Thanks for listening to Go Dutch, eh? A podcast presented by the Embassy of the Kingdom of the Netherlands to Canada. Please visit our website at netherlandsandyou.nl Canada for more information. And follow us on Twitter at NL in Canada. 